What's up, Lions of Liberty fans? You can now support this show on Patreon and get exclusive access to bonus audio and video content, including Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, bonus segments with guests, and so much more. Head on over to patreon.com slash Liberty. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday, a weekly show right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Felony Friday focuses each and every single week on exposing injustice in this nation's broken criminal justice system. This is one of three shows that we have here on Lions of Liberty. I always mess that up. We actually have four shows right now on Lions of Liberty. Our first show, every Monday, we start the week with a show hosted by Mark Clare. It's our flagship program, our longest-running program, where Mark interviews leaders in the liberty movement, and he hosts roundtable discussions as well from time to time. Every Wednesday, we have Electric Liberty Land, hosted by Brian McWilliams. It is your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty. And sandwiched between those shows, so right now, every Tuesday and every Thursday, Through the end of this month, we have a show called Candidates of Liberty, where we interview uh, libertarian candidates running for office, and we learn what their passions are, how their campaigns are doing, who they're running against, all that good stuff. So you can get, with those two Candidates of of Liberty shows, along with Mark's show, Brian's show, and my show, that's five shows. Right now, on Lions of Liberty, we have five shows per week. So be sure to subscribe You don't want to miss any of these great episodes. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please uh, think about doing that. We really do appreciate it. And if you like what you hear, if you've been listening for a while, or if you're just a new listener, you stumbled stumbled upon this, and you like what you hear, please go to uh, your podcasting app. If it's Apple Podcasts, whatever, go there. Give us a five-star rating. Give us a little review there. Tell us what you think of it. That helps a lot with the algorithms. So this podcast ends up in front of more people in searches and whatnot. So much appreciated. I don't want to hesitate too long to get today to uh, today's episode because it is incredible. Um, I don't think I could oversell this episode. It's just an insane story. What you're going to hear from my guest today, Judy Henderson, she spent 36 years, 36 years and 111 days in prison for a murder that she did not commit. And she was commuted by Governor Greitens. She's going to go through this whole story. There are so many just insane, hard to believe details. It's going to have you on the edge of your seat. So let's get right into today's interview. My guest today on Felony Friday is Judy Henderson. In 1982, Judy was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 50 years for her role in a robbery-turned-murder. At the time, her boyfriend, who was the man who committed this robbery, fired a gun and killed someone and actually shot Henderson herself during this process. Uh, Judy's boyfriend at the time went free while Henderson spent time and obviously spent time in prison until December of 2017 when Governor Greitens commuted Judy's sentence uh, to time served. So she ended up serving 35 years and 111 days. The governor reached this decision after he and his counsel had reviewed thousands of pages of reports, court transcripts, letters, and records related to Judy's case. Judy, welcome to Felony Friday. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for having me on. Well, thanks for coming on the show. And you know, I was—I hadn't heard of your case, and this was probably two, two or three weeks ago. A, uh, a friend of mine who refers a lot of people to, to my show, uh, Malik King, had met you at a, yes. a conference, I believe, and uh, he told me about your case. And as soon as I did a little research and looked into it, you know, I, I couldn't believe what I was reading. 
Um, well, I, mm-hmm. I could, I, unfortunately, I could believe it because I see stuff like right. this happen far too often. But hey, I just wanted to have you on and give you the chance to to really share about your story, to share what happened here, um, because Thank you know you. far far too often this stuff does happen, and people don't believe it because they don't know what happens. So let's right. let's kind of take our way through this and track our way through. Let's start, you know, before this happens, before this uh, this robbery occurs with with, uh, with your boyfriend. So, wh- sure. Wh- what what was going on in your life at that at that point in time? How old were you? Where did you live? Just to set the stage. Well, to set the stage, I had been married right out of high school um, to my first boyfriend, and we uh, were married for twelve years. He was. Uh, there was a lot of domestic violence in our marriage. Um, I We ended up having two children, and we stayed married for 12 years until um, he started hitting my da- our daughter, and then that gave me the courage to be able to leave. Uh, when I did so, though, he did not stop the abuse there, and uh, when I would come home from work, he would still be waiting for me at the house to continue that type of behavior. And um, there was just so much pressure, and I wasn't good with pressure inside the home. I could do fine in the workplace, which I was a working mother of of two small children from, well, from their birth. I worked from the age of 16 to my incarceration and and through my incarceration. But, um, and I was a good upstanding citizen. I had never been into drugs or alcohol, a social drinker periodically. Uh, always held a job, was active in my children's lives. Um, but then whenever we got the divorce and the abuse still continued, I ended up attempting suicide and ended up in the psychiatric ward in September of uh, 1980. Um, I'm sorry, I believe that was 81. And uh, so I was there for uh, a few weeks until the psychiatrist told me that I needed to leave the area where I was residing and I needed to move down to Springfield where my family was, uh, which I did. Uh, while I was there, I moved down, I moved down there probably in October. In February, I purchased a business. Um, I was on the ground floor of the tanning business. So I felt like, you know, my mother had been in business, my, my stepfather and, uh, so we we pretty much knew how to, you know, get started in business and be successful. Mm-hmm. However, um, I met my co-defendant, Greg, in April. Um, I was on my way back to Kansas City because I was still a codependent. I was supposed to be taking um, a psych medication, which I don't take meds. I refuse to take meds, and I did not take them. Um, and so, um, when I met Greg, he was on his way up to Kansas city also for a real estate convention. So we decided that we would ride together. A friend of, of his introduced us. So that is how I met him. Uh, whenever I came up here, I was going to speak to my ex-husband about reconciling, um, for our son's sake, because he was uh, he was three years old, my daughter was twelve at this time, and I just had this guilt feeling about children should be raised with both parents, regardless of the abuse that I would suffer if he didn't put his hands on our daughter any longer. Uh, however, it did not work out. We ended up uh, I ended up going back down to Springfield and um, started dating Greg. And in June, Greg, I came home with my son from the nursery one day, and um, Greg had moved into my home, Hmm. unbeknownst to me. Yes, it was a shock to me. How long had you known him at that point in time? April. I met him in April. And he moved into my home with me and my two children um, in June. And, uh, you know, I told him, I said, this is not something that I would, would do with, with my children. And he convinced me that, uh, I needed him and he was, he was the perfect gentleman. He was very suave and debonair. 
he was uh, educated. He was a real estate broker. He had been in the ministry at one time. So, um, and my parents liked him. My stepfather was also a minister. So it was just, um, you know, I, I just thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll try this. Maybe I do need him, you know. And I wanted somebody. It's like every girl when she grows up, she has this vision of the perfect marriage, the two children, uh, the white picket fence. And and I honestly, I just wanted somebody to love me. I just wanted a good home and a, a nice, normal place for my children. So I thought, well, you know, I'll try this. He has two sons that are uh, on each side of the age bracket as my son. So I thought, well, this, you know, this might just work. Well, then in July, the murder happened. And I was so codependent on Greg by then. And, and you know, like I said, I wasn't addicted to, to drugs or alcohol, but. Being a codependent, codependents are addicted to love. And there is very little that we won't do just to have someone love us like that. Um, because we have low self-esteem, but yet we can function very well in the workplace. And so for him to convince me that uh, to be involved in a robbery, that no one would get hurt, you know, the jeweler that he robbed would be um, someone that would have insurance. He would be someone, uh, he was a, a married man and therefore would never, you know, want to call the police or let his wife know that, you know, he was having drinks with a blonde. And so it sounded like it would just be easy the guy would get you know the victim his um, insurance company would pay him for any losses that he had and no one would be harmed and Greg could continue on with uh, getting his divorce and we could end up getting married and uh, so what, but what, was, what was the reason I mean had Greg did he confide that he'd done anything like this before or was this no, uh, he was friends with a bail bondsman that had the bonding company. And um, he uh, never appeared to be this kind of guy. He he wore a three-piece suit, you know. He was um, well-spoken. Um, I, I really didn't know him to run around with any, you know, one that would be of this nature. Um, so, no, I, I was totally shocked. I was totally shocked whenever he wanted to do this, but he just, you know, he had a way of convincing me that everything would be fine. You know, the police wouldn't be called. No one would get hurt. Uh, the insurance would pay everything off uh, that was taken. And it would be just simple and easy. He could get his divorce. His wife wanted $10,000, and that's what he needed. So, but little did I know, it wasn't just him that was planning this. It was his friend that owned the bonding business and another gentleman that uh, came to me to discuss the situation. And um, which, you know, they said no one would get harmed. And and by then, I, I was just, I, I just couldn't believe any of this was happening. Actually, to... to be honest with you, I didn't think it would happen. And I thought it was just all talk, you know, just guys just shooting their mouths off and and something like this wouldn't really occur. Until mm-hmm. so I came home from work and he told me, he said, this is, I want you to do this, this, this. And he wouldn't tell me what to do the next step until I completed the, the first step. So I never really knew any details of what was going to happen as far as where to go, what time, you know, until I would um, get an instruction from him. But it ended up that the robbery did occur. The gentleman was shot. Um, I was shot in the stomach and uh, did not realize it until it was, um, until I felt the blood running down my stomach. And, um, 
you know, um, excuse me. It's okay. And, um, then things just went crazy from there. You know, nothing turned out like it was supposed to, nothing happened like he said it would happen. And, um, then he ended up taking me to Alaska where he had friends up there and, um, a hitman was sent to kill us from the gentleman that owned the bonding company uh, because he thought we knew too much and he was involved in it and he didn't want us to talk. So Greg said that we would end up, we would go to Alaska because he didn't think that the uh, gentleman that was sent to kill us could find us up there. And, um, but it just so happened that before we went, we were in St. Louis and we were in the hotel room and the gentleman that was sent to kill us came to the door and he uh, walked in and he had a silencer on his gun, set it down on the table and he told Greg, he said, I'm here to kill you and Judy uh, because uh, the gentleman that owned the bonding company, Don Little John, said that you knew too much. And he wants me to take Judy to the phone and tell him where the jewels are and then I'm to kill her. And I'll tell you, John, what was so ironic and I, you know, I swear, you know, God had this plan from the, he knew what was going to happen, of course, before it ever occurred. Because the gentleman that sent to kill us, he looked at me and he said, are you so-and-so's daughter? And he said, my mother's name. And I said, yes. And he said, she has a picture of you in her store. I said, yes, she does. And he said, your mother is the only one when me and my family and children came to town that helped us with clothing and food because that was the kind of my mother, the kind of person my mother was. She drove a Cadillac, but she, you know, she always helped the poor. She always helped those that lived under the bridge, wherever they were on the railroad tracks. And, uh, she said, and he looked at me and he said, you know what, because of what your mother did for me and my family, he said, I'm not going to kill you today. Wow. I know. I know. I, I just, that's a story that I will carry with me to my grave. I'll never forget it. And uh, she saved my life and wasn't even aware that she would have, she was doing this a few years prior to this incident. And so he let us go. Um, but he said he knew that somebody else would be sent in his place. So we ended up going to Alaska and that's where we were arrested. And uh, then we were extradited back to Missouri on January 1st of 1982. So how long were you in Alaska for then? Not that long? No, from July to uh, December 15th, I believe it was. Okay. And then we were arrested and extradited back on New Year's Eve. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of aspects of the story that... I just know bits and pieces about it, but so right. w- once you were arrested and you're you're uh, in jail, um, you and Greg had the same lawyer, correct? Yes, we did. That's where the uh, serious conflict of interest occurred. Uh, we had the same attorney representing both of us. And I, I mean, hindsight, now I can look back and see, but at the time I, uh, thought he was just loved me and he wanted to be near me, but what he was actually doing was controlling my defense. Mm-hmm. He wanted to be in every meeting. So he knew exactly what the attorney was going to say, what my defense was going to be, who the witnesses were going to be. He wanted to be sure that night I did not make take a plea bargain I did not ask for a plea bargain or that I would have anything detrimental to say about him on the stand and the attorney even told me he said uh, Judy he said you cannot take the stand in your behalf unless you come up with an alibi and say you weren't there 
And I tell him, I said, I, I can't do that. I said, you know, I, I can't get up there and tell a lie and say that I wasn't there, that I, w- I was there. And um, he said, then, if you're going to tell the truth, he said, then you can't take the stand because you're going to harm my other defendant, my other client, which mm-hmm. is was my co-defendant. And um, I said, okay, well, then I guess I won't take the stand because I'm not going to get up there and lie. And uh, so I... My defense was actually no defense because everybody that he called in as a witness, I didn't even know they were going to come in until they walked in the courtroom. And they were people that Greg had uh, coerced. One guy was in the cell with him and he uh, coerced him into taking the stand and um, making up this story. I was sitting there and I thought, "This no, this isn't right. This isn't even what happened. And, um, so it, it was just, it, it was no defense, no defense whatsoever. And the Friday before my trial was supposed to start, I called my mother's shop and, uh, my attorney was there with her and my stepmother and my ex-mother-in-law. And, um, I told them, I said, I want a plea bargain. I want, I want him, I want my attorney to go to the prosecutor and ask for a plea bargain because, um, uh, the jailers that was in the jail, they were really, they liked me. They were concerned about me. They said, Judy, he's selling you down the river. You have got to snap out of this. He does not care about you. And um, so the attorney said that he went and talked to the prosecutor, but I found out, you know, years later that he did not. He just went to the court. Well, he acted like he went to the courthouse, but he didn't even spend enough time getting but the time it took him to get there and then to the jail to see me, it was too short of a time span for him to have seen the the prosecutor. And the prosecutor then years later said no, that he did not come to him on that Friday about a plea bargain. And um, it ended up that the prosecutor that prosecuted me, he ended up becoming a circuit court judge. And at the time he reached out to my attorney, he was the presiding judge over all the circuit judges. And he told my attorney, he said, I want to do everything I can to help Judy. He said, she does not deserve to be there with this sentence of life without parole for 50 years. Mm -hmm. And he said her defense was horrendous. And he said, I just want you to know I'm going to try to do everything I can to get her home. So, um, you know, he was very instrumental in in helping me come home. And he had a lot to lose, his career, you know, so for stepping it, out like that. I do, want to, I do want to talk about that, obviously, but I just want to backtrack to the trial again for a minute. Sure. So sure. We, we, we know your sentence. What, was, what, what did Greg get and what did the other people involved well, get? Anything at all? Unbeknownst to me, while Greg was sitting in on my legal meetings with the our attorney, he was meeting with two other attorneys on the side. And whenever I was convicted, he uh, fired our attorney and hired these other two defense attorneys. And he went to trial. He addressed his own jury, which is just very, very uncommon. I've never heard a defendant that was ever allowed to address their own jury in closing arguments. And, uh, but he's that swan and that debonair and he had an all female jury. So, you know, they knew what they were doing. They had, they really used strategy with his personality and, um, he was acquitted. He was acquitted. So he had a big, uh, black tie dinner that night. A lot of the reporters were telling me about it that are now friends of mine and that have been friends later and, you know, during my imprisonment, uh, became friends of mine because they were also livid. The whole town of Springfield could not believe that this had happened and that I went to prison and he was acquitted. And, um, so yes, he was acquitted. He never did a day of time for the murder. The one that helped plan the murder, he was given immunity um, to testify against myself and Greg. And he even told the jury in my trial, he said, Judy did not kill anybody. She did not shoot anybody. 
As a matter of fact, when Greg brought her to my house that night, she had been shot. And um, did you ever Greg get treated for your for your wounds? No, Greg would not take me to a doctor. That's why we went to St. Louis because the gentleman with the bonding company told him there was a doctor up there that would look at wounds and not report them. But Greg didn't trust anybody, and he was very paranoid at that time, and he did not see me or take me to a doctor. He just took care of it himself. And, was, it, um, was it How painful was that? It, it was very painful. I could barely walk, you know. Um, and um, it was, um, it, when you're first shot, it's, it's a numbing feeling and everything is numb. So you can't really feel it until it wears off. And then, yeah, and then it's very painful. Yeah. And uh, so uh, little, uh, you know, the one that owned the bonding company, Don Littlejohn, he ended up, uh, he knew we were going to St. Louis, so therefore he knew where to send someone to kill us. And uh, then whenever Greg got ready to go to trial, but I ended up, of course, going to prison. And uh, uh, then ag- there again, um, um, I did not know, you know, Greg, he was getting ready to go to trial. And he wanted to ensure that I was not going to come back and testify against him because I stopped all communication. Once I got convicted, that was it. I finally, I guess this was, uh, you know, it, it was like a big light bulb went on. I was hit in the head and it was like, wake up, Judy, because you know what? If you don't snap out of this and become a stronger woman, you're never going to get out of this prison and you're not going to get out alive. So whenever I went to prison, I was very angry, and of course, and he um, he ended up uh, getting somebody in the jail where he was at. They were a career criminal. She was, and whenever she came to prison, she befriended me, but Greg put a contract out on me, and um, she took it, and whenever I was told about it by another offender, I knew that I had to take care of the situation before she took care of me. So <clears throat> I told a friend of mine, I said, I've got to, you know, I've got to take care of this. So I need you to stand at the bathroom door and, and I'm going to take her in here and we're going to end this now once and for all. And um, so I did. And uh, we went in there and we had a fight. And sure enough, she had a shank in her bra. Uh, which I knew already that she carried one. And uh, then the officers come running in after another inmate came running in first and kicked the shank under the, sh- under the uh, washer and dryer that was in there. And we went to the hole, and um, they never knew she had a shank. I never said anything, but they ended up transferring her to Kansas. And so then I thought, okay, you know what? I am going to get a hold of the prosecutor, whether or not I get a deal or not, um, because now he he's, you know, I, now I, I'm livid. You know, this is it. I'm finally the strong gorilla. <laughs> and um, so I decided to, and the lieutenant there in the prison helped me get a hold of the prosecutor. And uh, we were going to, um, the prosecutor sent people to the uh prison where I was at, not to the prison because they didn't want any offenders to see what was going on. And I talked to them about it. And, um, but come to find out, uh, Greg had, um, his attorneys talked to three other, let's see, one, two, four offenders paid. Uh, he paid four offenders to come back and testify in his behalf that I said that I set it up, I shot the victim, and he had nothing to do with it. Two offenders were paid $2,500. Two others were uh, were given commissary money every month until they made parole. And it just so happened that two of the, those two ended up violating their parole and came back to prison. And when they did, they wanted protective custody. The first one did. She wanted protective custody because, you know, I was 
still there, and she thought I knew what had happened, and I did not. I did not know he did that. And um, so she talked to the uh, lieutenant and said, hey, I want protective custody, and he said, why? And she told him. And so he came to me, and he said, Judy, I have an opportunity for you. He said, I think that we can get her to sign a notarized affidavit to these facts. And this could help you go home. And um, so that's exactly what we did. And um, I, she did do it. And then she got out in population. And whenever the second person, could, because she gave me the names of the other three offenders that did this. And whenever the other one came back, I just walked up to her and asked her. I said, hey, here's what I've got. I'm going to let you read it. And I'm going to see if you'll give me one. And sure enough, she did. She gave me one to also. So we use those as part of my clemency packet, too, to show, you know, what actually occurred and and what kind of person he was. And um, so all these little factors, all these little things that happened in this case added up to a big picture for everyone. And... Um, um, I started doing a clemency in 1983 whenever I first I came in 1982 to prison. In 1983, I filed my first clemency with the first governor. And, um, you know, whenever you go to prison and you're, you're very angry, and I realized I could do two things with my anger. I could either get bitter or I could get better. And I, and I'm very, very proud to say that I did get better. You know, the woman I was then is, will never be the woman I am today. Um, I look back and I think, how could I have been that person? But you know what, John, there are a lot of of battered women out there that, um, are very codependent and have low self-esteem like I did. And, uh, gosh, you know, I just like to talk to them all, and I, I do do a lot of speaking and, and let them know, you know, hey, you're worth more than that. You know, get out while you can and do something with your life and don't stay in that situation. But, just, um, yeah, just, just in- incredible. <laughs> um, so you first started um, pushing for clemency in 1983, mm-hmm. right? So were there any... Were you denied appeals going through that? Yeah, yeah. Yes, all my appeals were denied because even though what occurred with the conflict of interest was uh, um, unconstitutional, they could not make it retroactive. So moving forward, this could never happen to someone else. But they could not change. It sounds like it's a conflict of interest, too, but also... Sounds like ineffective counsel. I mean, you asked the yeah. guy to go to the prosecutor to make a, to get a plea yeah. deal, and he didn't do it. No, um, absolutely right. He did not, and it was a serious conflict of interest and uh, ineffective assistance of counsel, which is also your constitutional right, right to uh, you know to a fair attorney and justice, and it did not occur. Um, but, you know, politics, whenever you start doing clemencies, that's when you better also learn politics, learn how to write bills, learn how bills are created, get political bipartisanship on your side. And because no attorneys are ever taught how to do clemencies in law school. And I did not know that until I started this process. And so I've taught a lot of attorneys how to do clemencies, and still I get phone calls from attorneys wanting information on what to do. And um, it's it's a long, drawn-out process. You have to be very transparent. You have to be very honest about your entire life. It just has to be under a microscope. And you can't hide anything. And um, uh, But it took seven governors which a lot of them ran for two four-year terms, so that was a long time before I could get to another governor. Uh, but and one thing I do want to correct that the governor's office did put in the paper that is incorrect is I did 36 years and 111 days. Okay. 
So, and that other year really does make a difference. Trust me. That's a whole other year. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so I really got in, delved into uh, the political arena. I started getting a hold of senators and representatives, and I started building my support system. And um, then I took every college class, attended every program. I created programs for domestic violence and parenting programs for mothers and their children. And... Um, became a dog trainer, a certified paralegal, a hairdresser, and I left prison being a um, certified group fitness trainer and a personal trainer. Um, So I stayed stayed very busy, 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 busy. (laughs) The cannabis industry has rapidly expanded. For those liberty lovers who want to take advantage of this growing industry, they've been met with a flood of government taxes and regulation. A lot of cannabis companies would just love to hire a full-time CFO, but that could be super, super expensive. But what if you could have the knowledge and experience of this full-time CFO at a fraction of the cost? If you're in the cannabis business or you plan on entering the fray, then you need to schedule a free consultation with the Grow CFO Rachel Kennerly. The Grow CFO will help to maximize cost of goods sold deductions by employing accrual and cost accounting, creating tax savings and improving cash flow. They will keep your books in an audit-ready state. If you or someone you know is either already in the cannabis industry or thinking about jumping in the fray, go to thegrowcfo.com and schedule a free consultation today. So what you said that... uh you know, you had two options when, once you first got into prison, to be bitter or to mm-hmm. get better. W- was that yeah. just sort of naturally in you to, to pick the getting better and to stay busy and, uh, and, and to do that? Or was there anything that, that triggered that in you that you can pinpoint? Well, you know, I did not, I did not want to stay the woman I was. And to be a different woman than what I was, I had to first get a lot of therapy to find out why I was like I was, what happened, why did, uh, I mean, I was sexually abused several different times during my, my started as a little girl and then a teenager and by an assistant pastor of our church. And um, so I had to understand how all of this and my years of abuse affected my thinking and affected my esteem. And so once I figured all that out through therapy, uh, then I was able to have that foundation to build a different kind of woman within myself, if that makes any sense to you. And... um, so, yeah, it, it was something I chose to do on my own because you can come to prison and you can stay angry and you can catch more cases. You can learn how to be a better criminal and you can learn how to do drugs and, and get drugs in. There's all kinds of things that you can do illegally. But I chose to be um, the citizen I wanted to be on the street as a citizen I was in prison. And... Um, I had to earn my respect in prison because I came in with a family that cared for me a lot. I was the oldest of eight children. So I had a parents and siblings that uh, took good care of me all during my incarceration. And sometimes whenever you have that support, you're not well liked in prison unless you're willing to share everything with everybody. So I really had to learn how to earn my respect there and um, without being taken advantage of. And so that's a technique you have to learn in that world because it's so different in this world. And I spent more years there than I did in the free world. So, um, yeah, so I I chose to be better than what I was. So I, I want to ask you about when you did find out that you were getting your sentence commuted, that you were going to get out after 36 years and 111 days. Can you take mm-hmm. us through how you found out, what you felt, just the the emotions of the moment? Well, I helped a law professor of the St. Louis University, John Ammon, um, 
create a coalition for myself and 11 other women. So we started building, you know, a bigger support system. And um, the attorneys, we were assigned law students. And I had one law student that took me into her law firm personally whenever she graduated in 2012. So, she, and she was a bulldog. I mean, she just did not take no for an answer. She really pushed forward and pushed in the governor's office and would just walk in and ask to speak to somebody. Well, and so we requested that they come to visit me. So each woman in the coalition would have law students. And my, like I said, my law student was very assertive, very aggressive with her, her personality. And, um, so she talked him into coming to visit me, the governor's uh, legal counsel. And this was like two or three weeks prior to my getting released. And the coalition had met with the governor's office uh, several months before that. And they said there that Governor Greitens, it was his first year. So that made history in the state of Missouri and probably in the United States. Uh, that a governor was uh, that he would release somebody in his first year of his four-year term. They're usually done at the end of the four-year term or eight-year term. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, he ended up having his legal counsel come and speak with me. Uh, my daughter, uh, she would go to the governor's office, go to the Capitol and walk in and ask to speak to the legal counsel. And they were very very, um, you know, willing to do so, willing to speak to her. And they were very accommodative. They were very open to the public, uh, that administration was. And um, um, so they did come to speak with me, uh, Justin Smith, and he's still a friend of ours to this day and always will be. Um, We sat for three hours and my female attorney, you know, met him there. So we had a three-hour conversation, and we laughed, we cried, you know, we had uh, discussed everything that we could, and I was very honest and very open, and um, he told me, he said, I I don't know what the governor's going to do, I can't say, he said, we just kind of wanted to come and get to know you, we're not here to tell you if you're going to get this, you may not get this. And he said, but the governor wanted me to come in and just personally meet you. And um, he said, as a matter of fact, I'm supposed to meet with him tonight at 530 and report how everything went. And um, so then I I just waited. Uh, They did tell the coalition that he would make decisions on these clemencies uh, by the end of fall. So. December 20th came, and I knew winter was going to begin the next day, so I really didn't anticipate anything happening. I, I really didn't. I, uh, you know, I, I just went to work that day in the gym and started doing my fitness classes uh, and aerobic classes like I normally do every day, and uh, didn't expect a phone. I didn't expect a phone call from, uh, you know. Uh, anyone to for me to report to the visiting room but um i got that call and um at first i argued with the officer i said no i do not actually i was in the clinic because i just finished an aerobic class and went to the clinic to get a mammogram and was not in any position to walk out of there at that moment whenever they told me i had a legal visit and i yeah it was not good timing it was really, yeah, yeah, it was comical, actually. And um, so I argued with him. I said, no, you have the wrong Henderson. My attorney would tell me if she was going to come. She knows never to surprise me. And they said, Judy, we're serious. You do have a legal visit. So finally, they convinced me to go up there. So I went up there, but I had to wait an hour and a half. And I I was starting to get really nervous because I thought, okay, this this is not good you know, to get an unexpected visit and then have to wait this long. There's something happening. It's, I, I just thought really negative that it was going to be bad news. And uh, so after an hour and a half, uh, they said, oh, Judy, your attorney's here, so you can go in. And it was a non-visiting day, so there was nobody in the visiting room. 
And I walked in and it was Justin Smith. And I said, Justin, what are you doing here? And he said, well, he said, there was a couple of questions that I still had for you. And he said, but, and I had my, my back to the door and he said, um, actually there's somebody that would really like to meet you. And I said, somebody that would like to meet me. And he said, yeah. And so he said, if you will turn around, you'll see who it is. And I turned around and it was the governor. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. That's okay. Take your time. And, um, <laughs> and he just looked at me and he said, hi, Judy. He said, you didn't expect me, did you? I said, no. And I just started crying and I just fell to my knees because I couldn't believe it was there. I'd waited 36 years for this. And, uh, and so he helped me up and he just set me down in the chair and he took my hand in his and he said, for one, I want to apologize on behalf of the state of Missouri that you've had to be here this long. And he said, we apologize that our system did not work for you. But he said today, he said, I'm going to read you a paper. And um, he pulled it out from underneath the table. And he said, um, as of this day, your sentence of life without parole for 50 years has been commuted to time served, immediate release. And I, I think I was in shock because I, I, he had to repeat that immediate release like three times because I did not get it. <laughs> you know, I said, Are, did you say immediate release? <laughs> and he said, yes, right now. I said, right now. He said, right now you get to go home. And oh my gosh. <laughs> and um, so um, he said, but before you do, and I, I asked him, I said, please tell me. I said, is there any press out here? Because I really don't, you know, I don't want any press around. And he said, no. He said, as a matter of fact, he said, we were very uh, strategic in how we handled this. And um, we did not want any publicity because this is about you, Judy, and it's not about me. And it's not about what I'm doing. He said, um, this is for you and your family, and I wanted it as private as, as it could possibly be. So they did a really, really, really good job. Even they called my daughter the night before and my son-in-law. And my two attorneys, uh, they called them the day before, and, and nobody would tell me anything. They were so secretive. They wouldn't even really talk to me when I called them on the phone. They even kind of hung up on me. <laughs> because they didn't want to slip and tell me what was going to happen the next day. Yeah. And uh, my daughter had fought so hard all these years because she was 12 and now she's 50. So, um, um, but um, yeah, so he said, I'm me and my staff are going to get out of the way. And there's somebody here that's been waiting a long time for this. And he opened the door and there was my daughter. And my son-in-law and my grandchildren and my son and his wife and my attorneys. And um, it was a great day. It was a great day, John. You know, we have good video of it. <laughs> and uh, and the whole prison was just in an uproar. They were so uh, jubilant and just so excited and for me. And um, there were 16, over 1,600 women. And... Um, the warden, he came in and he said, okay, Judy, here's what we're going to do. He said, you're going to quietly walk with these officers down to your cell and we're going to have you pack out. And anybody you want to meet or say bye to or, you know, say anything to, he said, just let them know their names and we'll have them over to your housing unit. And uh, so I said, okay. So we started uh, back down to the prison, which is, you know, like up probably about a three quarters of a block from the visiting room to the yard. And uh, the officer said, now, Judy, just act nonchalant, like nothing's happened. I said, okay, you know, I can do this. So we walked down the sidewalk and we started hearing all this screaming and hollering. 
And I looked at both officers. I said, okay, that's plan A. It didn't work. What's your plan B? And so they started laughing. They said, well, let's just go for it then. I said, okay, let's go. (laughs) So um, I walked down there and I could barely get through the sidewalks because there was all these women and captains and lieutenants and sergeants. I mean, I grew up with these people, you know, and Mm -hmm. caseworkers. The caseworkers helped me pack out and, uh, and, um, and, you know, something else that's ironic I want to mention, John. Remember the one I told you in the beginning that took the contract in the prison that had the shank? Yeah. Well, she was, she's a career criminal, so she's a repeat offender. And she came back through the years. And uh, I never let anybody know. You know, I just kept it quiet because I knew that she already knew it wasn't going to happen anymore like that. And, um, so they take you to the clinic after you pack out, uh, to do some blood work and stuff like that. And as I was leaving the clinic to go up to the visiting room to walk out of the prison, the last person that I saw that I touched and gave a high five was her. Wow. I know. I thought, wow. That's what I said. Wow. I, I, she came toward me and I said, Pam, I said, Hey, I just want to wish you good luck. And, uh, she said, Judy, I wish you good luck too. I said, high five. And we gave a high five and, and I left. It's an um, incredible story. Um, yeah, you've been through it, it. And, you know, people ask me, you know, when I when interview people who've like yourself who've who've done this time and there's been a great injustice. Mm-hmm. After you get out, how do you do you do you carry any anger with you? Do are you what's what's your feeling towards that thirty six no. years that, that you served? You know what? I no. I absolutely do not harbor harbor any anger or bitterness. I let that go and I am I am excited about life every day, John. That's great. You know, there's yes, there is just something that I learn every day and and I try to you know, I, I just have to believe that what I went through that chapter of my life helped me find my purpose in life. And uh whatever I can do to help others along their journey in whatever capacity they need me, I I just wanna do it. You know, I wanna do it. I I thank God for all that I experienced and all that he got me through and um uh, uh I do have a strong faith, you know. I go to churches and law schools, uh conferences, uh and speak about it and um you know, you can take you can take something that's meant for to be bad in your life, and you, there's always something good in it. Always, you might have to dig a little bit deep to find it, but it's there. And um, um, I can't ever say that I have a bad day. You know, it's um, it's great. Life is good. Life is really good. And oh, just, uh... um, you know. Yeah, incredible, I, I incredible know. Attitude. Um, well, thank you, thank you. Yeah, I, I'm just um, really, really grateful that Malik met you and was able to connect thanks. us to to get you on to get you on to share your story because I think this is well, going to help you, a lot of people. I hope so, and it's. I'll tell you, it's really been an honor and a privilege to be able to do this. And thank you for reaching out to me, even though I don't know all your technology yet. Um. <laughs> well, that's, that's kind of, that kind of brings us up. So, just one quick question. So, after okay. you know, being being in prison for thirty six years, you get out. It's a whole different world from a technological standpoint. What has been like the most shocking change in technology that you know that you had oh. to figure out? <laughs> Well, I never had a cell phone before, so that little bitty box thing <laughs> just about had me beat. <laughs> and then I I start going to the end of these restaurants, and I didn't know there was 101 ways to flush a stool. You know, I thought, <laughs> are you serious? <laughs> this cannot be real out here. <laughs> and um, the traffic was horrendous. It was like, 
oh my gosh, where did all these cars come from? And, um, you know, and even the cars are so different. The insides of them are different. And it took me about, let's see, I got out in December and I finally got my license in July, the end of July. Mm-hmm. And um, now you can't stop me. I'm always traveling somewhere almost every weekend to speak to somebody or help somebody or go to Jeff City to work on some bills and laws to help some other women and, and men in prison. And, um, so yeah, the technology has just been really crazy, but everybody tells me that I've really picked it up fast. They said, I don't know how you've learned this so quick. We don't even know. And we've been out here. We didn't even know our phone would do this. <laughs> yeah, well, well, now we'll introduce you to a podcast. You can listen to this and, uh, right, there's, a whole, right? there's a whole nother world of podcasts out there. So that'll open oh up my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I go to computer classes every chance I get just so I can learn more because, you know, my daughter, she's so busy. Her and my, my son-in-law, they don't have time to teach me all this stuff. And she's the executive director of a, a big charity. So, mm-hmm. um, so I just have to step out and, you know, face fear and say, hey, you're not going to conquer me. I'm going to conquer you. And, um, and you know what was ironic? I've got to tell you about this. The conference we went to in Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, I was kind of leery about going because I did find out my co-defendant only lived like four blocks from there. And, um, yeah, so I, I thought, okay, do I let fear keep me from going to this? And I thought, no, nothing's going to stop me from moving forward in my life ever again and doing what needs to be done and doing it the right way. And, um, so yeah, it was great. It was a great conference. I really, uh, you know, connected with a lot of the work that they're doing and just felt really, uh, energized, energized and loved the experience. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, that's, that's, that's great, Judy. And, uh, you know, I think, I think I told you at the beginning, we'll talk for about a half hour. It's been, it's been almost mm-hmm. an hour. So thank you for being so generous with your time. <laughs> You're welcome, John. Anytime, you know, I can do anything for you in any capacity, please don't hesitate to contact me. All right. Well, thank you. I I appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk soon. Okay, John. Thank you. Okay. Bye now. Well, I didn't lie at the outset, did I, during my intro when I said that this story will have you on the edge of your seat. It's going to pull you in. Um, What just incredible... Man, it's hard to even put into words um, that conversation, that interview with Judy, and you know it's it's interesting because I didn't know those details coming into this interview. I I didn't know I I did know that she was shot during um, when, when the murder occur- occurred during the the robbery attempt. I did not know that she had multiple hits out on her. Um, that the hitman followed uh, followed her and. Uh, her boyfriend to was I think it was Kansas City, and then up to was going to up to Alaska, and they went up to I, I didn't know about about that stuff and the the contract taken out on, out on her when she was in prison, um, just crazy stuff, and to be so positive that entire time, to be so positive the whole time you're in prison, um, and continue to work and work and work at getting clemency and never give up hope. 36 years and 111 days, and then the governor walks in, you don't know what's going to happen, and she gets clemency. Just, she gets her time served, it's over, walks out the door that same day. Just amazing, just amazing. So I'm not going to ramble on anymore. All I'm going to do is a is a humble sell of our services here at Lions of Liberty, if you like what you hear on this show, if you like stories like Judy Henderson that I bring to you on uh, Felony Friday, if you enjoy this, if you enjoy the work that we put in, this is a free podcast. We give it to you for free, and that's cool. I mean, if you enjoy it, share it. You know, share it on social media, email it to a friend, send it to other people. But if you really like what you hear and you want to help us to expand and grow and reach more people and uh, bring these stories to the ears of millions, then please consider joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. If you join the Pride, you can join for as little as $5 per month. 
And we have bonus content that you get in the Lions of Liberty Pride. Sometimes uh, we'll keep a guest on for some extra questions. Or we do have a couple of recurring shows that we do. One being called Conspiracy Corner, where we dive into some silly conspiracies and talk about them. One being called Degenerate Gamblers, which it is a little bit about sports, but not really. It's more about just having a good time and and shooting the shit. And uh, it's an entertaining podcast. We enjoy doing it for our... Uh, we have a lot of people enjoy it in our Lions of Liberty Pride. All kinds of content like that. Random rants from Brian McWilliams from time to time. Brian, of course, the host of Electric Liberty Land. So it's it's good stuff. You join for as little as five a month. You can join for 10 or 15 or 25 or even $100. And, of course, the, the more that you give, the more incentives you get, the more things you receive in return. You get merchandise and T-shirts and beer koozies and, and things like that. And at the $25 level, you get a a monthly conference call with us at the $15 level. You get opted into our Monday through Friday news links that we send out procured by the great Howie Snowden, the godfather of Lions of Liberty, who just pulls together an insane amount of news links that we dump out on our $15 and up Lions Pride members. So please consider joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. Go to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. That's it, guys. This is John Odermatt. Signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.